Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number six on The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Good to be back. It's been uh, a couple weeks since I've been able to do most of my broadcast, though we only miss one week uh, of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is nice. Um, but uh, let us jump back into things. I want to get all the way to the revolution and beyond, uh, if we can, here this evening. Uh, so let's see how we do. Um, one quick announcement um, is that uh, we have two regional moots uh, that are coming up soon. Uh, in the end of September, I'll be confirming date and location very soon, uh, next week, I hope. Um, but we're looking at the end of September for New England moot uh, in coastal New Hampshire is the area that we're looking at. Um, so if you're in the New England area, you can kind of pencil us in there. And... Um, uh, also, uh, more definite uh, is Middlemoot on October 9th in Waterloo, Iowa again, back in Iowa, as we've been uh, several times before. Um, so I hope to uh, be able to see some of you guys. We are going to have... Um, uh, moot hub available so we will have a full digital interface for those moots as well for people who would like uh, to participate uh, to take part in those events digitally as well as in person um, we're going to be we're definitely going to be full hybrid with all of our moots this year uh, which is going to be a lot of fun a fun challenge uh, as well as uh, um, uh, as well as uh, a really great opportunity so uh, that is uh, going to be exciting, and I am uh, I am glad to be working on that. So don't forget, end of September, New England moot in New Hampshire, and then um, uh, October 9th is going to be uh, uh, middle moot out in Iowa. All right, back to the text then. Let us jump back in. So you may remember uh, we were in the middle of the trial scene. Uh, we were looking at some um, loony jurisprudence uh, when uh, Manny finds himself uh, hired, because he, he d does take money for it, right? Uh, he was hired uh, to judge uh, the case of this tourist whom this group of uh, kids wanted to eliminate. Um, and one of the main things I was interested in in this scene, I think it's a it's it's a it's a it's an interesting scene because it's well along in the book, and yet it's it's another kind of uh, it's another glimpse into Looney culture. But it's not just another glimpse. In some ways, it feels almost like a corrective glimpse um, to make sure I don't know, kind of make both to make sure that we're understanding some of the uh, the things that he's trying to convey about uh, Looney culture, but also uh, to uh, sort of soften some of the, 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 the... I don't know if that's exactly right. I was going to say soften some of the, the rough edges of what uh, was suggested about them earlier before, maybe to clarify uh, some things about the actual sort of culture on the ground. Uh, anyway, we'll see a little bit more of this. Um, but... Um, 
Uh, we had Manny hired. We had the jurors dragged in from the street. You know, the uh, the uh, uh, jury uh, of the proximate uh, there. Now let's uh, move on to the crime. Again, of course, this is just uh, Manny telling us about it most of the time. We get a little bit of uh, direct dialogue, but a lot of this is just sort of summarized by Manny. Beef was tragically ridiculous. Fine example of why tourists should not wander around without guides. Sure, guides bleed them white, but isn't that what a tourist is for? This one almost lost life from lack of guidance. Had wandered into a tap room which let Stilyagi hang out, a sort of club room. This simple female had flirted with him. Boys had let matter be, as of course they had to, as long as she invited it. But at some point she had laughed and let him have a fist in ribs. He had taken it as casually as a loony would, but had answered... Sorry, let me do that again. He had taken it as casually as a loony would, but had answered in distinctly earthworm manner, slipped arm around waist and pulled her to him, apparently tried to kiss her. Now, believe me, in North America this wouldn't matter. I've seen things much like it. But of course Tish was astonished, perhaps frightened. She screamed. And pack of boys set upon him and roughed him up, then decided he had to pay for his crime, but do it correctly. Find a judge. Most likely they chickened. Chances are not chances are not one had ever dealt with an elimination, but their lady had been insulted, had to be done. Okay. Um, so, again, what we're seeing here is, again, not only more of a view into Looney culture, but also some kind of a, a reminder, right? Our tourist here brings in, for the first time in this story, really other than um, kind of our own frame of reference, an earthworm touchstone, right? Um, a reminder of the difference of Looney culture from Earth culture, um, because here we have somebody who needs to have, who needs a guide, who needs things explained to him. And it's interesting, again, to me, it's interesting to me that we get this at the end. This is the kind of thing you might expect to see at the very beginning um, of a story like this. Um, that is, you know, to have uh, somebody from out of town who needs everything explained to them. And uh, Devorah, it reminds me of the question that we've been thinking of frequently. Uh, well, not frequently, but occasionally as we've gone through the question of who the audience, whom exactly Manny is addressing, right? Because there are times when he seems to take some things for granted, but there are a bunch of times when he seems to be explaining things like he feels he has to explain things to people who really don't, um, don't know, uh, don't know the culture. Um, yeah. So, uh, Carrie is asking, could this have been, uh, set, uh, could this just have been set to show that Luna, without laws, still had legal procedures and decently uh, decency and order in judgment? Uh, a peek at what will replace uh, the authority uh, uh, and uh, Taryn writes. Yeah, in some ways. Right. Again, there, there were moments in which we could have based on things that Manny said, we could have gotten the impression that, you know, loonies are basic, you know, like it's just anarchy, right? Um, anarchy in a bad sense, not in a sense that Prof would approve of. Um, just like that there are there are no rules. Everybody does exactly what they want and people get killed all the time. Um, you know, I, I was comparing it to the Wild West or like ideas about um, um, uh, about the Wild West, right? You know, that, uh, you know, it's just like everyone for themselves and, uh, you know, just like shoot anybody who offends you and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's kind of... Manny is clearly... On the one hand, he uh, 
is a little impatient with the boys, right? I mean, he, you know, he calls the whole thing tragically ridiculous, right? Um, it's tragic, potentially tragic for the tourists, but also ridiculous. Um, ridiculous that the, um, that the tourist should do this, should get himself in this kind of position. Um, but also ridiculous uh, for the kids as well. Um, Manny makes it clear, he's going soon to make it clear, um, that he considers elimination for this kind of thing ridiculous, right? Um, uh, they were right, right? They were right to defend Tish. They were right to beat up the tourist, right? You know, he should be punished for what he did. It should be made clear to him that that is not the way to act, right? But notice that's the principle always involved, right? The principle involved is always... I don't know, one of communication, right? It's not like a, that was wrong and therefore you must be punished, but rather he needs to be taught not to do this. Again, notice at the beginning, the emphasis on the guide, right? The problem was this guy didn't have anybody explaining to him how things will go, right? Um, now, of course, that he got set upon and beat up for acting this way, hopefully he will have learned his lesson, um, uh, Manny seems to reason. Yes, Stephen, I agree. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Uh, that seems to be more or less it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, notice how Manny even puts crime uh, in quotation marks, right? Had to pay for his crime, um, suggesting Manny does not really consider it a crime. Now, it's not that he is does not find this kind of thing appalling. Note the, the almost apology, right? Now, believe me, in North America, this wouldn't matter. I've seen things much like it. The tone of that sentence I find sort of interesting, right? Like, he has to reassure his audience, and Devorah, this is, you know, getting back to that question again, right? It does seem to be a loony audience, right? Because it's like he's got to assure them that, like, believe it or not, in North America, people behave like this, Right? Like in on on Earth, um, you know, just like I, putting your arm around a woman and pulling her towards you, uh, you and trying to kiss her, even if she didn't invite you to do that, like people wouldn't think twice acting. You know, like people do that kind of thing all the time and they don't even think it's a big deal uh, uh, in on on Terra, right in North America. Um, I love how Manny has to cite himself as an eyewitness, right? Like, trust me, no, it's really true. People actually do act like that. I've seen things much like it. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so you can tell that he certainly considers this behavior devious, deviant, right? Um, and even kind of appalling. I mean, again, notice, but of course, Tish was astonished, right? I mean, his his uh, his sympathies are entirely with Tish there. Like Naturally, she was astonished by that kind of behavior, perhaps even frightened. Nobody acts this way towards women uh, in uh, on the moon. Um, and so she screams. So he's sympathetic, right? But also he, f he recognizes that what the guy was doing, what this tourist was doing, um, is not something that he, the tourist, considered bad behavior. He needed not to be executed uh, for his crime, uh, but to be taught proper manners, right? Um, so, Devorah, I agree. The audience does it has got to be loonies of a generation or two later. Yes, far enough in the future that he, Manny, has to keep reassuring, to keep reminding them, like, remember, this was back in the old times, right? 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Um, yes. Um, yeah, and Bruce, we, we can uh, watch what happens when we get to Earth. I'm looking forward to the Earth chapters. Um, there'll be some interesting things to talk about there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, Arthur, yes, I think that Manny is suggesting the boys are acting tough to impress Tish, yes, but then chickened out when facing the reality of elimination, yes, when he says most likely they chickened. Yeah, chances are not one had ever dealt with an elimination, but their lady had been insulted, had to be done. Um, yes, they chickened. Um, they could have done it. I mean, they, if they had dragged him, yes, you know, Manny says he's going to scold them and tell them this causes going to cause all sorts of trouble. Um, but there are no laws, right? They could have done that. They could have dragged him to an airlock and thrown him out the airlock. Um, and in some ways they had the moral high ground uh, to do that. Like nobody would have. Um, and of course, nobody, he doesn't, doesn't have any friends or relations who might have hunted them down and eliminated them for doing it uh, later on. Um, so absolutely they could have done it. So why didn't they? Because they chickened. Um, and again, this is one of those places that I think is a little bit corrective, right? Where Manny seems to be telling us that um, they don't eliminate people as casually as uh, they, as, it, as, as it, it might have sounded earlier from the way that they talked about that. Um, and Bruce, I agree, it does imply that Manny himself has been involved uh, in elimination before. Um, yeah, yeah, I suspect so. His verdict. Here's my verdict. First, that juryman. You. You are fine fee paid you because you fell asleep while supposed to be judging. Grab him, boys, and take it away from him and throw him out. They did. Enthusiastically. Made up, uh, made up a little for greater excitement they had thought of, but really could not stomach. And again, notice the emphasis here, Arthur, is they can't, they can't stomach. Like, they had the idea of uh, taking this guy who had insulted their girl and, and throwing him out an airlock uh, made them feel big, right? It was, a, it was an exciting prospect, but they couldn't actually stomach killing him. Um, so they take it out on this jury man instead, right? Now, Gospodine Lejoie. Gospodine Lejoie. You are fined 50 Hong Kong for not having common sense to learn local customs before stirring around. Ante up. I collected it. Now you boys line up. You are fined $5 a piece for not exercising good judgment in dealing with a person you knew was a stranger and not used to our ways. Stopping him from touching Tish, that's fine. Rough him, that's okay too. He'll learn faster and could have tossed him out. But talking about eliminating for what was honest mistake, well, it's out of proportion. Five bucks each. Ante up. Slim gulped. Judge, I don't think we have that much left. At least I don't. I thought that might be. You have a week to pay, or I post your names in Old Dome. Know where Bonton Beauty Shop is, near Easement Lock 13? My wife runs it. Pay her. Court's out. Slim, don't go away. Nor you, Tish. Gospodine, Gospodine Lejoie, let's take these young people up and buy them a cold drink and get better acquainted. Again, his eyes filled with odd delight that reminded of Prof. A charming idea, Judge. I am no longer Judge. It's up a couple of ramps, so I suggest you offer Tish your arm. Okay, so he he finds everybody, right? Payable to himself, it would seem, right? Um, which is one of the things that 
kind of interested me most about this, right, is that on the one hand, a more eminently exploitable system, I can't imagine, right? I mean, that, uh, um, I mean, on the one hand, of course, like they are going to consent to it. I, I don't know, ex- you know. Notice the only penalty he has, like uh, if they um, if they don't pay up, all he can do is post their names in the old dome, right? Um, that is, he can, he can, on his authority, right? Like use his own reputation, um, to, um, what, uh, criticize them in public, right? Spread the, you know, post publicly that, you know, they, uh, um, don't honor their agreements, right? Basically use his reputation to try to undermine, uh, the establishment of their, you know, future reputation. There's, there's nothing else, right? There's, there's no penalty of law that can be brought down upon them. There's no other punishment that can come in. Um, and and yet, again, just asking somebody like a friend of yours that you know to act as judge and the judge bringing in whatever random jury people he wants, whether, which he may or may not pay any attention to in the, in the next place. And then he assigns everybody fines payable to him personally um, and then walks away with a whole bunch of money in his pocket that he didn't have before uh, just because he you know, spent the last, what, half an hour, uh, you know, uh, listening to this thing and giving a judgment. Um, As I say, a more eminently exploitable situation seems hard to imagine. And yet it doesn't it doesn't seem to be Uh, that is it doesn't seem to be a uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be exploited. Um, And this is where at the very end of last time I was talking about how there are moments, not, certainly not all the way through. Um, I would not characterize this book, broadly speaking, as a utopia. It's not a utopia. But there are moments that have, to me, that kind of utopian feel, where um, Heinlein seems to be sort of suggesting elements, elements of something like an ideal society. Not exactly but close. And this scene is one of the ones that, um, uh, that really strikes me that I, I think more than any other, uh, in the entire book, this is the one that really kind of rubs me that way. Um, it gives us a glimpse of like, Hey, look, uh, you don't, you know, this is why you don't, you know, you don't need laws. You don't need the government oversight. Um, if you leave people on their own, they can sort it out just kind of like this. Um, it's, uh, it's now, now I agree. I, um, Carrie and, uh, Michelle are both emphasizing, um, that, uh, um, of course, like, you know, having your name and your reputation in that way, you know, like the, the, you know, whether your word is any good, having that undermined or questioned in the society would be a huge deal. Absolutely. The loss of reputation in a society like this, um, would be a really, really big deal. That would, that would, that would be huge. Totally agree. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. But that's the point, right? The point is that this is a society in which, that's true. We don't ourselves live in a society quite like that, right? Um, and so it does really help you to pick, really help you to see that. 
Um, yeah. And Stephen, you're absolutely right. If you tried to exploit your position as a judge unfairly, you may not keep the money. You may, you may, you might end up roughed up as well. Yeah, certainly possible. I mean, if you really, if people really felt that you were exploiting them, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, manipulated, you, you could get eliminated yourself. Why not? Um, you would be subject, uh, certainly to those same actions, right? Um, yeah, good. Bruce is remembering when Manny was um, trying to get into the uh, the meeting, uh, you know, where he met Wyo, uh, and the, all the trouble began. Um, he was he stood on his reputation, as Bruce was reminding. You know, any old cobber will know who he is, um, and that his word is good. Uh, yeah, yeah, he definitely appealed to that. Um, good, good. Um, Okay, let's see. Later on, he goes to speak. He's, you know, he has his uh, drink with uh, Stu, Le Joie, uh, the tourist whom he just saved from being eliminated. Um, and Stu has some questions. And once again, we find ourselves. We find, you know, Manny is explaining the situation where he has to belabor some of these points for the earthworm who can't understand, right? Who doesn't get it, doesn't get how loony society works. Gospodine, he said presently, you used an odd word earlier. Odd to me, I mean. Call me Manny now that kids are gone. What word? It was when you insisted that the uh, young lady, Tish, that Tish must pay too, Tonstoppel or something like it? Ah, Tonstoppel. Means there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And isn't. I added, pointing to a free lunch sign across the room. Or these drinks would cost half as much. Was reminding her that anything free costs twice as much in long run or turns out worthless. An interesting philosophy. Not philosophy. Fact. One way or other, what you get, you pay for. I fanned air was earthside once and heard expression free as air. This air isn't free. You pay for every breath. Really? No one has asked me to pay to breathe? He smiled. Perhaps I should stop. Can happen. You almost breathed vacuum tonight. But nobody asks you because you've paid. For you is part of round-trip ticket. For me, it's a quarterly charge. I started to tell how my family buys and sells air to community co-op. Decided was too complicated. But we both pay. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. So this is one of the primary things that this is one of the big themes, right? This is one of the uh, the core elements of um, the uh, the loony um, atmosphere, right? The loony culture. Um, Tom Stoffel, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And then he points the free lunch sign. And you know what occurred to me? I didn't think of this the first or the second time, uh, or the third time I read the book. It was, in fact, only when I was looking at the slide before class, when I had put it up on the slide, um, and uh, realized there's only a very, very small uh, distance between free lunch and free Luna, right? Which is the slogan of the revolution. Um, 
uh, you know, there ain't no such thing as a free Luna is it's it's very close uh, to that expression. Um, and it's interesting, interesting in the context um, of um, uh, very interesting in the context of what we are seeing here, right, of, of what we're seeing in the culture and in this story as a whole. I don't know if that's an accident. I don't, you know, I'm not saying that I necessarily think that Heinlein was planning it that way, but I think it's very interesting, right? Because, of course, one of the things um, that we're going to see, especially as we get into part two, um, they want to free Luna. And the big question at first is, is it possible, right? Are they going to be able to, you know, throw off the authority and uh, achieve their revolution? Um, remember, Manny initially was resistant to join the revolution because he didn't think it was possible at all, right? Now, um, once they get there, right, which we're, we're, we're already beginning to get close here, uh, by the end of part one, they find themselves with Luna freed, and yet the question becomes, what does that mean, right? What does it mean that, uh, uh, that, that they're free? Um, is there any such thing? Uh, as a free Luna any more than there's any such thing as a free lunch. Um, and I think uh, already we've seen him set the stage for this question, right? Remember we, how we saw this right away, how as soon as they began planning the revolution, they started doing things that both Prof and Manny were uncomfortable with, right? Things that they felt were wrong to do, like steal money from people, um, as they were doing with their, with their complicated bank scheme. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and we're going to see more of that and more of that, uh, as we move forward, um, with prof, uh, with prof, especially, I think. Um, so how does the Tonstoffel principle apply? And Tonstoffel, of course, this is not obviously, uh, you know, glancing ahead. It's clear I'm not just kind of pulling this or isolating this passage unfairly. Um, though, again, even Stu coming back and prompting Manny to expound on this draws a certain amount of attention to it anyway. Um, but Tonstoffel is going to be the title of section three of this whole book, right? I mean, that's the culmination of this book is being done under the name Tonstoffel. Uh, you know, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch is where we're going to kind of end up uh, at the end of this book. So I think it, uh, it certainly bears thinking about as we, uh, as we move forward. Um, notice about the air, the, the immediate place where they go is air. And the point that the important point that Manny makes is that Stu is paying for it. He doesn't think he's paid for it. He doesn't realize he, he's paid for it. And the parallel is the parallel is with the lunch, right? They're literally sitting in a place that has a free lunch sign on the wall, right? And Manny points out the lunch, of course, is not free because if they were charging for the, if, if not for the fact that they weren't charging us for the lunch, they would charge half as much for the drinks, right? One way or another, you pay for what you get. Um, and, uh, 
anything free costs twice as much in the long run or turns out worthless. Um, so what is the revolution going to cost exactly? Um, or is it going to turn out worthless? Right. That's, I think, a really big question. Um, and the heir, of course, is the other example. Stu doesn't realize he's paying for it. And um, Manny has to point out, you already did pay for it. Right. You've paid up front for the air that you're breathing. You just don't realize that you did. Um, and so, again, we'll see. How does this principle... So this is one of the questions that I have that I would, you know, challenge you to be thinking about. How does this apply? How does the Tonstoffel principle apply? Because I think it applies in a bunch of ways uh, to the rest of the story. But we'll see as we move forward. You aren't convinced, but charged kids all they could scrape up and find them, too, to make them think. Couldn't charge you more than them. Should have. You think it was all a joke. Believe me, sir, I do not think it was a joke. I just have trouble grasping that your local laws permit a man to be put to death so casually and for so trivial an offense. I sighed. Where do you start explaining when a man's words show there isn't anything he understands about subject, instead is loaded with preconceptions that don't fit facts and doesn't even know he has? Stu, I said, let's take that piece at a time. Are no local laws, so you couldn't be put to death under them. Your offense was not trivial. I simply made allowance for ignorance. And wasn't done casually, or boys would have dragged you to nearest lock to zero pressure, shoved you in, and cycled. Instead were most formal, good boys, and paid own cash to give you a trial. And didn't grumble when verdict wasn't even close to what they asked. Now, anything still not clear? He grinned and turned out to have dimples like Prof. Found myself liking him still more. All of it, I'm afraid. I seem to have wandered into looking glass land. Wandered into looking glass land. Now, of course, many of you, I hope, get that reference. Um, and uh, understand what he's referring to. If not, read Alice Through the Looking Glass. This is such an important book. Oh, my goodness. Um, Alice in Wonderland is, of course, a classic, and lots of people know Alice in Wonderland. I hope that people also know Alice Through the Looking Glass, the sequel, which is a rare example, I think, of a sequel that is better than the original. Um, uh, Through the Looking Glass is a wonderful, wonderful book, which has... Um, provided a kind of imaginative vocabulary for generations and generations of writers, including, of course, both Lewis and Tolkien, both of whom um, loved Alice Through the Looking Glass. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a big deal. <laughs> that book is a big deal. If you've never read it, go read it. You absolutely, you absolutely should. Um, but, uh, of course, in Looking Glass Land, things work backwards, right? Things like cause and effect uh, work backwards in Looking Glass Land. And that's what he, where he feels, so he feels like he's wandered, Looking Glass Land is a place you can wander into. You just, you go through the mirror, right? Um, that's how Alice gets there. Um, into a room that at first looks just the same as the room that she was in, right? Only she finds when she's there uh, that everything is quite different. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Did you... Uh, 
did you know that I believe it was the Walrus and the Carpenter poem from Looking Glass Land that uh, Tolkien translated into Quenya. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Uh, so he feels, uh, Stu feels like he's in Looking Glass Land. To him, from his earthworm perspective, this all feels like it's completely upside down. But the cool thing, I think, um, this is one of the moments that makes me feel most, it really kind of drives home to me how effective um, Heinlein's world building has been to this point. Because there were a bunch of places where I felt disoriented at the beginning of the book, right? Place, because, I mean, I'm an earthworm too, right? So there were lots of ways in which the societal norms and assumptions of uh, Luna were strange, different, unexpected to me. Um, and places where I felt a little bit you know, uncertain what on earth was going on. Um, now, Stu feels like he's wandered into Looking Glass Land, but when Manny's explanations, you know, I'm, I'm on Manny's side now, right? I understand. Uh, I've, I've seen enough of Luna, uh, of Luna culture to know where Manny's coming from, right? And to see, not just to understand, to be able to contextualize his explanation and to understand the significance that though he's explaining very quickly and very briefly, um, but to be, but for it to kind of resonate and make sense, right? Um, uh, going back to front here, right? Talking about them in the reverse order that he did. Stu was like, how could a man be put to death so casually to him that trial, like dragging in and hiring this dude off the street to judge you? Like, seriously, that would have the authority to that kind of a throw it together, a spontaneously kind of court has the authority to deal out capital punishment sentences. Like that's how you guys roll. Um, and Manny's like, that wasn't casual. That was completely formal. Um, they went out of their way to be formal. They, casual would have been just throwing you out the airlock, right? Um, they instead decided to be formal. So he's got it. He's the one who has it exactly backwards. That wasn't casual. That was formal. Um, the offense was not trivial. To uh, force your sexual attentions on a woman who did not invite them is a capital offense. In Luna. I mean, like, that's very clear. Um, it was not a trivial offense. Um, Manny's just emphasizes that he made allowance for ignorance, right? He understands. He knows enough to know that Stu did not... Stu, un, Stu thought it was trivial, that Stu did not understand um, that in Luna what he was doing. Now, no, does this mean Manny doesn't share the same feelings as the these guys? Right, that he doesn't care about women like they care about women. No, we will see how Manny reacts when the of with the the woman who is raped and murdered. Right, he reacts like all of the rest of the loonies do. Um, but uh, uh, but again, he knows enough context. He's been to North America, right? He knows enough context. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yes. 
Um, <laughs> right. As Stephen Cover says, to Stu to call this a show trial would have been an insult to show trials. Yes, absolutely. Or or like a kangaroo court, uh, David. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, and of course, like, you know, his misconceptions start at the front door, right? I have trouble grasping that your local laws permit a man to be put to death, right? There there aren't any laws. There aren't any local laws. Um, You're not being put to death under a local law that permits it to be done in this manner. Um, You're not understanding the situation. Everything about this situation, uh, he is not understanding. Um, But again, uh, this is one of the things that I found so interesting about this is that we are, at least I find... I feel like an old cobber already by this time, right? I mean, I got it. I could see exactly. I, I, the trial was a surprise to me, right? We'd never seen one of those before. And yet, um, Stu's assumptions begin to sound um, uh, begin to sound weird, right? Begin to sound strange. Many are telling me that I can murder a man here and st- settle the matter merely with money? Oh, not at all. But eliminating isn't against some law are no laws, except Warden's regulations, and Warden doesn't care what one loony does to another. But we figure this way. If a man is killed, either he had it coming, and everybody knows it, usual case, or his friends will take care of it by eliminating man who did it. Either way, no problem. Nor many eliminations. Even set duels aren't common. His friends will take care of it. Manny, suppose those young people had gone ahead? I have no friends here. Was reason I agreed to judge. While I doubt if those kids could have egged each other into it, didn't want to take chance. Eliminating a tourist could give our city a bad name. Does it happen often? Can't recall has ever happened. Of course, may have been made to look like accident. A new chum is accident-prone. Luna is that sort of place. They say if a new chum lives a year, he'll live forever. But nobody sells him insurance first year. <laughs> right? So does that mean because he's so accident-prone or because he's likely to have accidents arranged for him? Um, maybe a little bit of both. Um, so it hasn't officially happened, apparently. But again, does, so does this mean Luna is full of casual killers? That this is just like, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the jungle, right? Where the, the strong rule uh, because they threaten to kill others? No. That is not, in fact, um, uh, what happens here. Instead, again, we just have this sort of imagined society where either way, no problem, right? Um, either everybody knows the guy deserved killing or, uh, uh, you know, uh, his uh, friends are going to take care of the problem by uh, getting rid of the murderer. One way or the other, right? It's all good. Um, and I get this is... Uh, it's an odd sort of, um, it's an odd sort of, uh, uh, you know, utopia. But in a sense, it it is, I think, a sort of, um, uh, a sort of utopia. As David says, until this point, I never really grokked that this society is an anarchy by convention. It makes Prof's political inclinations much less disruptive. Yes. In a sense, David, and I agree, I think that I can see that too, right? Um, when Prof was describing his anarchist philosophy, it seemed very possible, even likely, that he is kind of weird, right? Um, kind of kind of deviant, you know, like benignly so, perhaps, uh, you know, but... Um, um, but I agree with you. Here, it begins to seem like, no, actually, Prof 
he is not a native loony. There are a lot of ways in which he doesn't think exactly like native loonies. And yet um, he he has the spirit of Luna. Like he, he, he gets it. He is the uh, the sort of voice of the most kind of benign form, uh, I think, uh, of the of the spirit of, of Luna. Um, yeah. Anarchy by convention is just how uh, just how things work. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Stu, of course, is going to be a very important figure. And Manny has already begun to kind of pick up on this. He's already begun to see the potentials here. Um, one of the things that we see with Manny again and again, his perceptiveness, his sort of sensitivity to people, which we first saw with Mike, right? Manny being the first one to pick up the fact that Mike was a person in the first place, right? Um, but his, um, you know, his instincts about when to trust people, um, we've, we've seen it not only in his decision to open up and uh, immediately after having made this big conspiracy with Wyo and Prof and how important secrecy was, he immediately uh, tells mum, um, uh, and, uh, recruits her into the, uh, recruits her and like pretty soon, uh, his entire, uh, family, uh, into the conspiracy, which again, you'd sort of think in principle, um, prof might have, uh, cautioned him against that kind of thing. Right. But, but it works out really well. Of course, as we see, um, Manny's whole family ends up playing really, really important roles in the revolution, right? So um, he does a really good job with that, it turns out. And, of course, he uh, recruited Hazel, which was, um, you know, and she uh, is a uh, is a really important figure. And so, I mean, Manny, from the start, is kind of the kind of the linchpin of this, uh, of all of this. His sensitivity to people and perception of people is a really important element of the story. Um but it's only here at the end of the stew scene, the courtroom scene, and then the uh, the conversation in the bar afterwards, that he explains what was going on in his head. Despite throwing rocks, Mike knew, we all knew, that mighty Terra with 11 billion people and endless resources could not be defeated by 3 million who had nothing, even though we stood on a high place and could drop rocks on them. Mike drew parallels from 18th century, when Britain's American colonies broke away, and from 20th, when many colonies became independent of, of several empires, and pointed out that in no case had a colony broken loose by brute force. No, in every case, imperial state was busy elsewhere, had grown weary, and given up without using full strength. For months we had been strong enough, had we wished, to overcome Warden's bodyguards. Once our catapult was ready, any time now, we would not be helpless. But we needed a favorable climate on Terra. For that, we needed help on Terra. The one crucial thing that they are missing is somebody on the inside, right? Somebody who is down on Terra and who can help the cause, um, who can help with propaganda and bribes and things like that down on Earth. And Stu is the one that he quickly picked. And you're absolutely right, um, Carrie, that uh, his it's not only his perception of Mike, but his trust of Mike. Uh, 
that instinct of when to trust. Manny's instinct of when to trust is trust is really, really good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, David, I agree with you. I, I hadn't thought about it much consciously, but I think that was niggling at me too. David says, uh, the use of Roman numerals here is really jarring. It must tell us something about loony culture, but I can't figure what. Um, they're awful for doing arithmetic, and math must be important to keep the colony going. Yeah, David, and of course he makes, uh, he, Manny, I mean, makes the comments about, uh, about um, you know, imperial measurements and stuff, and uh, uh, how horrible that was, and uh, how glad he is that they switched to metrics. Um, yeah, why he would write, as presumably he is writing, in... Um, Roman numerals here. I, I don't know. I don't know why he would. Other than, is it a kind of convention? Um, is it a kind of convention of historical convention? Um, is there a sense in which he is, I don't know, is David, is it even possible that he's distancing himself from earth history by using these numerical system, which is of course, archaic, long since archaic now um, and must seem even more archaic a century hence in the 21st century, though proportionally speaking, I suppose in the 21st century, they're not that much further away than ancient Rome than we are. Um, but still, um, is that, uh, you know, would he refer to uh, lunar dates in the same way? You know, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So I, it's that's that's my theory, David, is that there's some kind of um, when he's alluding to Earth history, he uses these archaic Earth numbers uh, to refer to them. Just a just a theory. I don't know. Um, yes, Bruce. Uh, thank you. For, Bruce was bringing up a passage that I didn't include um, specifically. When Manny says, um, uh, uh, as men without women don't care whether they stay alive or not, except a cyborg, if you regard him as a man, which I don't. Um, his not, uh, we'll get to cyborgs. Um, I, I didn't quote that passage, but we are going to get at least one cyborg reference later on tonight. Um, and it is interesting. I don't. I'm trying to understand both exactly what a cyborg is. Um, I mean, I know vaguely what a cyborg is in general terms, but as far as in this culture, like what exactly is a cyborg? What do they look like? How are they composed cyborgs? Um, and uh, what do we, um, um, what do we learn about that? How does that fit? Cause Bruce, of course, as you point out, um, uh, a cyborg is, you know, a cross between man and machine, uh, which is like both Manny and like Mike. Um, Bruce, I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, so we'll we'll come to that. We'll we'll get at least one cyborg reference later on, which we can kind of throw in with that one, Bruce, and then see uh, see what conclusions we can draw. Okay, so yes, Arthur, exactly. Stu is uh, Stu is the Lafayette of this revolution, clearly. And what does he do? Here's what he does. 
But money was needed before Der Tag to build climate of opinion. We needed publicity, needed delegates and senators in federated nations, needed some nation to recognize us quickly once the day came. We needed laymen telling other laymen over a beer. What is there on that pile of rock worth one soldier's life? Let them go to hell in their own way, I say. Money for publicity, money for bribes, money for dummy organizations and to infiltrate established organizations, money to get true nature of Luna's economy, Stu had gone loaded with figures, brought out his scientific research, then in popular form, money to convince foreign office of at least one major nation that there was advantage in a free Luna, money to sell idea of lunar tourism to a major cartel, too much money. Stu offered own fortune and Prof did not discourage it, where treasure is, heart will be but still too much money and far too much to do. I did not know if Stu could swing a tenth of it, simply kept fingers crossed. At least it gave us a channel to Terra. Prof claimed that communications to enemy were essential to any war if was to be fought and settled sensibly. Prof was pacifist. Like his vegetarianism, he did not let it keep him from being rational. Would have made a terrific theologian. We'll come back to that comment in a second. Um, there is... Uh, um, he doesn't, uh, Manny says he doesn't know where, if Stu could swing a tenth of what has to happen, right? There are all these things that need to happen, and he's just sort of, what? Gambling, right? Um, Stu is their best bet at making this happen. They didn't have any other options. They didn't have any other way uh, to try to accomplish any of these things. Now, they do have resources, right? In a sense, Stu is not alone um, because he's he's working with Mike. Um, and Mike has access to finances, right, as we've learned, and um, um, has access to information. Stu is uh, sent back with information, right, to publish and things. Um, and Bruce, I agree. A one in ten chance is pretty good for a loony, right? A big fat chance of one in ten. Oh, my goodness. In fact, that was the... Um, that was the odds at which that was that was that was Manny's threshold, right? If there's a one in ten chance, he's in. Um, so it is interesting that we get that proportion again. Um, so what do they do? They gamble on Stu. Uh, it is such a fascinating combination of, on the one hand, this really careful calculation, right? All of these sets of really careful calculations um, uh, that. You know, uh, Mike is always calculating all of the odds to, a, uh, uh, to you know, a very, very uh, great detail. So in one sense, they're not taking any chances or they're trying to take as, as few chances as possible. They're trying to just rig the whole system so that it works out exactly like they want it to work. But at the same time, they're willing to gamble, right? They're inveterate gamblers and um, they are willing to let it ride on the only chance, the best chance that they have and hope and trust that it will, uh, that it will turn out well. Um, but yeah, Stephen, now back to that, uh, line about prof. Uh, Stephen Keen is asking in what sense is prof a pacifist? We're told in the same sense in which he's a vegetarian, right? Um, in other words, uh, not very consistently. Uh, you know, we see him sit down to ham and eggs. The first thing he does uh, when he arrives uh, at the hotel room with Wyo and Manny there um, at the beginning. Um, so uh, 
we know that his vegetarianism is a little bit theoretical, or rather that like when the need comes, right, when he feels that seems to be the principle, right? Um, he's very, very hungry indeed. And the food that is there contains meat. So instead of starving, he eats it, even though he's a vegetarian. He's a flexible vegetarian in that way. Um, in Manny's terms, he doesn't let it keep him from being rational. And his pacifism seems to be of the same sort. He does not approve of war or violence. And yet he's planning a war and how to fight a war right now. Of course, you can say that what is being pointed to here is not profs like eagerness or willingness to fight in a war. It's his insistence that they leave open the possibility of avoiding a war or at least of getting out of it. Um, Communications to enemy were essential to any war if it was to be fought and settled sensibly. If it's to be both fought sensibly and settled sensibly. You have to have communication channels with the enemy open uh, if you're going to settle it sensibly. Um, in other words, without beating each other into submission. Um, yeah. Yeah, David says maybe he acknowledges the principle, but sins when required. That's why he'd be a good theologian. Yeah, the the uh, one thing I couldn't help but thinking is that Manny's crack about him making a terrific theologian makes me think that perhaps Manny has not known many theologians. But um, uh, but anyway, I, I, I as uh, Theologians may have many vices, but this doesn't seem to me an apt characterization of them. Um, but who knows? Maybe I just know different theologians than uh, than Heinlein did. Um, but um, but again, notice the gap, right? The gap between the principles on the one hand and the realities on the other hand, and Prof's reason. Right. This is, you know, it's being rational. That's how Manny characterizes it. His reason, um, which leads him to sacrifice the principle for the sake of the rational achievement of his larger goal. And this again, this is to me what brings us back to Tonstoffel, right? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Um, it's going to cost Prof um, in order to for him to fulfill his principles, which is for him what the revolution was about. Remember, he was a, a sort of recreational, um, uh, you know, he was a, he was a, like an artist who believes in art for art's sake. Right. He was a, a, a revolutionist for revolution's sake, um, because that's what he believed in. Um but in order to make it happen, he has to compromise many of those very principles that he seems that he says he holds dear. Um, OK. But moving on from here, let's look at the uh, um, the build up to the end here as they continue raising the pressure. So remember, what are their basic tactics? Increase the pressure on you know, they they first secure their own communications and their own secrecy um, by trusting Mike. Right. Then they make things worse for everybody. Again, um, 
kind of compromising their principles, right? The whole point is uh, to alleviate the suffering of, uh, of, of loonies. How do they do that? By making the loonies suffer more um, to, get the, to bring them to the point where they will, um, where they will act, um, you know, to do what it's best that they do, even if they don't think that, right? Even if they don't see that yet, um, that it is best for them to overthrow the authority. Um, so it's how, how, let's look at more at how they're manipulating the warden. We had Morton at Twitter. He was yelling for help. He, so he wrote, this is uh, after the, this is the, the, the secret, the, the last secret code that Mike breaks. And uh, once they break it, he learns this stuff. He reported subversive activities still going on despite two phalanges of peace dragoons and demanded enough troops to station guards in all key spots inside all warrens. Authority told him this was preposterous. No more of FNs, that is the Federated Nations, cracked troops could be spared to be permanently ruined for Earthside duties, and such requests should not be made. If he wanted more guards, he must recruit them from transportees. But, but such increase in administrative costs must be absorbed in Luna. He would not be allowed more overhead. He was directed to report what steps he had taken to meet new grain quotas set in our such-and-such. Warden replied that unless extremely moderate requests for trained security personnel, not repeat, not untrained, unreliable, and unfit convicts were met, he could no longer assure civil order, much less increased quotas. Reply asked sneeringly what difference it made if ex-consignees chose to riot among themselves in their holes. If it worried him, had he thought of shutting off lights as was used so successfully in 1996 and 2021? Um, okay. What do we see here? Right? The warden is in a difficult situation. And the core of the problem is that, well, the Federated Nations and the Lunar Authority don't understand how serious the situation, um, how serious the situation is, right? And I agree, Stephen. Um, uh, Mort being in a Twitter probably has new meaning for us that Heinlein could not have anticipated. Yes, it's hard not to think of that. Um, but this is not just a question of him failing to communicate and them failing to comprehend the gravity of the situation, right? Um, what we can immediately see is a really deep irony in their relationship to Luna, right? On the one hand, um, they are unwilling to spend money. They don't care enough about Luna, right? Um, uh, why why should um, what difference does it make if ex-consignees choose to riot amongst themselves in their holes, right? So you've got a lot of convicts and ex-convicts and descendants of convicts who are rioting, right, and killing each other. Okay, who cares? Who cares? Why should they care about that? Um, they are not willing to spend any more money on Luna than they possibly, you know, than, than, than they can, any more than they have to, right? But at the same time, the irony is that Luna means a very great deal to them. P.S. about those new grain quotas. 
Um, Luna is a source of grain. It's a source of food, which is relied upon, especially as we will learn, uh, it's already been alluded to, we'll learn it more later, especially in India. Um, why, um, why is it? Why is it that, um, why do they not care? more about like what you know it's so on the one hand they care a lot about luna on the other hand they don't care about luna at all and it's that it's that irony it's the two sides of that that both are being manipulated here and that kind of have to be sort of reconciled right they're trying to exploit that um remember their whole goal the success of their entire plan is to get Earth to say, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, let the loonies do whatever the heck they want. Who cares um, what happens up on that rock? Um, which is pretty close to even the authorities' um, attitude, except for where their own profits <clears throat> are concerned. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, But again, as I say, there's this, there's this, there's this tension. Um, they do care very much about their profits, and so um, what are they going to be? Um, how they're going to respond when they see the real threat? Um, this gives us an interesting view into the warden's life, into the warden's. Um, position. This passage is the first one that really led me to see mort the wart uh in a in a quite different place right um he's the hated warden right he's the one that that uh, that oppresses the loonies uh and that the loonies uh you know he's the figurehead for their hatred um because he is the representative of the lunar authority on luna he is the warden they are the inmates right um and yet he is as much a prisoner as they are. He's been sent on this one-way trip. He also has been deported to Luna. And we can see the pressure that he is under. He has to deliver. Um, he has to deliver the grain quotas or else. I don't know exactly or else what. Um, but what are his options, Mort the Wart? Right? What are his options? He can't go back to Earth. Um, so if he doesn't continue being... If he gets replaced, and if he gets fired as warden, then what? What happens to him? He can't leave. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, Bruce was saying, uh, Heinlein was writing this about the same time as the Green Revolution, where India became self-sufficient in grain production. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and David, I agree, it does track the kind of casual disdain that European colonial powers had for countries like India uh, during the 19th century. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, notice also how this... I love the kinds of parallels um, that Heinlein builds, and he just kind of leaves them, right? He's very understated with this. He's not one of those writers that tends to thump you in, uh, in, in the face about this kind of thing. 
Um, but again, notice the parallel. The parallel between the lunar authority and how they look at Luna and the loonies and the computer men and how they look at Mike. They don't realize. They think of Mike as just a machine that's there to do their bidding, a useful tool, right? Um, but, uh, but it would never occur to them to imagine that he could be alive, that he could have his own views, that he could be in himself a real person, a person that you could become friends with, a person that, would, that you could trust uh, and who would be loyal to you out of friendship. Um, that kind of relationship with Mike, they can't even, it's literally unimaginable to them. And it seems almost equally unimaginable uh, for the Lunar Authority to think that the loonies, the, these ex-consignees, um, matter in the same way, right? They don't see them as people either. Um, and uh, uh, and again, once again, we, we see sort of Manny as the, uh, the sort of uh, central... Um, this sort of central pivotal figure, right? His, um, his perception, uh, his openness to the idea that Mike was a person, um, is really kind of points to the general accepting attitude of the loonies, right? That, you know, that like the way that they, they don't look down on, you know, uh, people from other countries and other ethnicities. And, you know, they're all, uh, they're all sort of connected in together. Um, they don't have that culture of looking down on people. They accept people who are all, the, who are, who are there. Right. Um, very different from earth as we are led to understand. But, um, <clears throat> but again, I think that that parallel, uh, between Mike and Luna, uh, as a whole, um, is really important just as much as, uh, Manny is kind of the quintessential loony, as we've said before. There's a sense in which Mike also is is like a, a you know a parallel to Luna itself. So we cut down on things that worried Warden and tried to speed up everything else. Simon Jester took a holiday. Word went out that Liberty caps were not stylish, but save them. Warden got no more nervous making phone calls. We quit inciting incidents with dragoons which did not stop them, but reduced number. Despite efforts to quiet Mort's worries, a symptom showed up which disquieted us instead. No message, at least we intercepted none, reached Warden agreeing to his demand for more troops, but he started moving people out of complex. Civil servants who lived there started looking for holes to rent in El City. Authorities started test drills and resonance exploration in a cubic adjacent to El City, which could be converted into a warren could mean that authority proposed shipping up unusually large draft of prisoners. Could mean that space and complex was needed for purpose other than quarters. But Mike told us, Why kid yourselves? The warden is going to get those troops. That space will be their barracks. Any other explanation I would have heard. Right. It is only the secret explanation, that is, that they are trying to keep from everyone, um, that Mike would have not heard. So the crisis is now becoming inevitable. If they get a whole bunch more troops up there, it is going to be much, much harder for them to take over. So now all of a sudden, so they're trying on the one hand, they're trying to reduce the pressure on the warden. So he doesn't hasten uh, the bringing up of the new troops and they don't give him more ammunition to use uh, in his appeals for more troops. But also 
they now know fairly clearly that their time is limited. Um, then the turning point. Her name was, was Marie Lyons. She was 18 years old and born in Luna, mother having been exiled via Peace Corps in 56. No record of father. She seems to have been a harmless person, worked as a stock control clerk in shipping department, lived in complex. Maybe she hated authority and enjoyed teasing peace dragoons, or perhaps it started as a commercial transaction, as cold-blooded as, in, as any in a crib behind a slot machine lock. How can we know? Six dragoons were in it, not satisfied with raping her, if rape it was. They abused her other ways and killed her. But they did not dispose of body neatly. Another civil service femme found it before it before was cold. She screamed. Was her last scream. The moment that precipitates the revolution is something totally unplanned and unforeseen in a sense. Not, not totally unforeseen. That having all these peace dragoons up here on, uh, you know, in Luna was going to cause trouble, they knew, right? And they anticipated. Um, but this is not a situation that they created, not one that um, they are, um, that they tried to connive at, right? Um, Manny doesn't know how it happened. Notice that he even, it's even possible, right, that, you know, that they were paying her. Perhaps it started as a commercial transaction, as cold-blooded as any in a crib behind a slot machine lock. Um, she might be prostituting herself to these peace dragoons. They don't know. Um, and Manny doesn't know. Um, but what he does know is they abused her and killed her at the end, and possibly were raping her in advance. Um, and to compound their crime when her body was discovered by another woman, that woman is also killed. Um, now, again, they don't... Um, um, yeah, Arthur, I do find it interesting that we don't get... We get this... Uh, we get this little um, one-paragraph biography of Marie Lyons, right? She is... It's like... She becomes, uh, after the fact, a hero of the revolution, right? Um, she was the, the, the one whose death set off um, the, you know, the, the ultimate, you know, der Tag, right? Um, and so she gets this little memorial, this little one-paragraph memorial uh, of her. Arthur, I agree. We don't get a biography of the second woman who's also killed, other than that she worked for the civil service is the only thing that we know and that she screamed. Right. Um, now I think Arthur, I don't think that that shows disrespect. I think what it, to me, what that shows the pause for the biography of Marie Lyons helps to really, um, emphasize the solemnity of this moment, right? This is a moment for history. Let us pause for a moment and remember Marie Lyons, right? Whose death, um, whose tragic death precipitated these events. But the second woman is part of the, um, part of the precipitation, part of the things getting out of hand immediately afterwards, right? Part of, uh, the, um, the momentum 
of events um, that two women are murdered. And this is, I mean, it's a bit, it's not that they don't care. Right. Um, but, um, uh, but I, to, to me, Arthur, it seems to suggest, he, it seems to convey the momentum of events. Right. Um, and, uh, and I certainly agree, Stephen, that Marie Lyons gets, gets humanized here rather than having her just be a statistic, um, or an event. And I don't, Arthur, I don't think that it suggests that the second is less important, uh, necessarily. Um, but I think for him to have narratively treated them both equally, um, would have, uh, would have not given the same sense. The important thing, and Prof sees it, Manny struggles with it, but Prof sees it, right, is the momentum of events, right? Once the Marie Lyons incident happened, once Marie Lyons is probably raped, certainly abused, and definitely killed, once that happens, things begin to spiral out of control, and the immediate murder of a second woman is part of that spiraling out of control. So I think... That's just my sense of it, Arthur. If he had paused at that and be like, and let us also remember in a second paragraph, right, uh, the biographical details of this other, uh, of this second woman who was killed. Again, it's not that she's less important, um, but that would not have conveyed uh, what he is working to, what I feel like he conveys really well in this whole section, but that all of a sudden, this is upon them, right? Things are um, are moving faster than they can keep track of, um, and utterly outside uh, their own uh, their own control. Um, anyway, that's that's my sense of it, uh, Arthur. Um, but one last thing: it's hard not to. Um, it's hard not to remember. This is not what they wanted. They, you know, are Prof and Manny and Wyo responsible for Marie Lyon's death? No. Uh, I mean, you know, the Peace Dragoons made their own choices and were obviously, did obviously did horrible things. Um, and yet, this is exactly the kind of situation that the revolutionists were working to manufacture. Even specifically this kind of thing. Remember, they encouraged young women to tease and entice and taunt the peace dragoons, right? Um, And they were working to create increased tensions between the loonies, and the peace dragoons, hoping that bad things would happen. And when the bad things did happen, when the peace dragoons did do bad things, they made the most of it that they could. That was, they they were working hard to make those, to increase tensions between the peace dragoons and the people. Now, again, did they want this to happen? No. Did they, were they, you know, contriving the death of Marie Lines? No, of course not. And yet... This is exactly the kind of crisis that they were attempting to create. 
and it comes about in exactly the kind of way by yet another final and most horrible escalation of these tensions between the peace dragoons and the populace. Um, exactly the kind of thing that they had been contriving at all along. Um, so, again, is it their fault? You know, again, no, not exactly. And yet, um, uh, and yet, um, it's hard for me to sort of lose that question entirely. Um, and uh, look at the reactions here. At last was over, and Dragoon officer left Alvarez. So this is when they're listening in on the conversation with Alvarez, the security chief. We're still quarreling. Alvarez wanted those six executed at once, in fact made public. Sensible, but not nearly enough for his needs. C.O. was still talking about hushing it up. Prof said, Mike, keep an ear there and listen where else you can. Well, Mike, while, plans? I didn't have any. Wasn't a cold, shrewd revolutionist. Just wanted to get my heel into faces that matched those six voices. I don't know. What do we do, Prof? Do? We're on our tiger. We grab its ears. Mike, where's Finn Nielsen? Find him. Mike answered, he's calling now. He cut Finn in with us. I heard, at Tube South, both guards dead and about six of our people. Just people, I mean, not necessarily comrades. Some wild rumor about goons going crazy and raping and killing all women at Complex. Adam, I'd better talk to Prof. I'm here, Finn, Prof answered in a strong, confident voice. Now we move. We've got to. Switch off and get those laser guns and men with trained with them. Any you can round up. Duh. Okay, Adam? Do as Prof says. Then call back. Hold it, Finn, I cut in. Manny here. I want one of those guns. Notice the different reactions, in particular the difference between Prof's reaction and Manny's reaction. Um, Manny, when, when it comes to the point here, right, when they have reached the crisis which they were building towards, um, when now the event has happened which is going to bring the people behind them and ready to rise up and, and uh, uh, throw down and, and, and kill the peace dragoons. And, um, you know, would, would, would the people rise up and be sufficiently committed to the cause uh, to fight and die for it? Yes, now they are, right? Again, this is what they've been trying to get to. And um, Prof sees it, right? Um, he doesn't even understand Manny's question. What do we do? Do? We're on our tiger. We grab its ears, right? They're riding the tiger. They didn't plan this exactly, right? This was not under their control, but this is, uh, this is, this is the tiger that they're riding, right? You grab its ears and you ride. Um, and Manny, but what's Manny thinking about? Manny points out he's not, um, a shrew, a cold, shrewd revolutionist. He's not thinking, Primarily, how can we use this to our advantage? He's just thinking like a loony. He, like all the other loonies, uh, wants to get his heel into the faces that matched those six voices. Um, the rape and murder of two women strikes more deeply against the um, uh, strikes more deeply against the 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 sort of moral and emotional. Uh, uh, principles of uh, the people of Luna than anything else, right? Um, and notice again at the end, 
um, Manny is actually putting the plans of the revolution at risk in order to enable himself to take personal vengeance against the Peace Dragoons um, who have caused this problem. And Devorah, I think that's a really fair question. Um, she says, I wonder if maybe Manny didn't fully realize what increasing tensions could lead to where Prof did. Devorah, yeah, he seems, Manny, seems genuinely shocked um, by this event. Um, not remorseful, right? He's just angry. Um, it's, it is like... Devora, I agree. Like he never, he 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 was working consciously, like all the rest of them, to increase the tensions. Um, to they were delighted to see the peace dragoons continue to act more and more badly. Um, and even when it created fights or like lynchings of peace dragoons, uh, which left a couple loonies dead on the site. He didn't seem to have any remorse about that. It is almost like he never imagined that they would cross this line, right? Um, perhaps, perhaps. Um, and Ellen, I agree. Prof seems very much in his element here. Um, he is definitely a cold, shrewd revolutionist. Um, and this is one of the moments where we see Prof absolutely shining. Um, in a crisis, he is able to be shrewd, and cold, and to keep his head, and decide exactly what they must do, and to take fullest possible advantage. Again, where Manny is just thinking about how he wants to get his uh, his heel into the faces of those six peace dragoons, um, Prof is immediately thinking about how can we make best use of this for the sake of our revolution, right? Um Prof, I demanded. What sense in starting riots here? Um, uh, again, responding to Prof's saying, "We're uh, get, tell them they're they're like raping all the women in in, in Luna City, right? In the whole complex, the whole civil service complex." Um, Manny doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. Why? Why should we start riots? And Prof has to explain. Manny, Manny, this is the day. Mike, has the rape and murder news reached the other reached other Warrens? Not that I've heard. I'm listening here and there with random jumps. Tube stations are quiet except Luna City. Fighting has just started at Tube Station West. Want to hear it? Not now. Manny, slide over there and watch it, but stay out of it and stick close to a phone. Mike, start trouble in all Warrens. Pass the news down the cells and use Finn's version, not the truth. The goons are raping and killing all the women in the complex. I'll give you details, or you can invent them. Uh, can you order the guards at tube stations and other Warrens back to their barracks? I want riots, but there is no point in sending unarmed people against armed men if we can dodge it. I'll try. Manny doesn't even get it. Right. Um, what sense in starting riots here? Um, yeah, we just like he wants to do take a, a like a more judicial action. Uh, I don't I don't mean judicious. I mean, judicial. Right. Like, let's uh, let's go execute those guys who obviously do not deserve to breathe any longer. Right. Um, um talk about bad actors, right? Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's, we, obviously the loonies need to take care of this societal problem, right? But, um, and he doesn't realize that the day has come upon them, that this, you know, what prof sees that he can't, um, because he prof is a cold, shrewd revolutionist. It's not about how horrible this event is. 
He's not overwhelmed by that like Manny is. Instead, he sees this we can turn, right? This is the advantage that we were looking for. This is the opportunity. Now is the day when we have all the people behind us and we can make this happen. Um, now we do get, uh, no, so, and then we, we see him immediately issuing commands, right? Let's, uh, let's stir up trouble everywhere that we can. This is our rallying cry. Like this is, this is a, a motivator that has legs, right? Everybody is going to get behind this. So tell everybody not the truth. Here again, Prof is, it brings back up that question. Um, is it okay? Uh, at, you know, under what conditions um, is it morally uh, acceptable for a group to do something that would not be morally acceptable for the individual to do? Um, we, know, we were just talking earlier about how important your word is, your reputation. Um, if people can't trust you, uh, if you lie uh, and you lie in order to manipulate other people, that's bad. That's very bad in this society. Um, and yet here's Prof saying, pass the news down the cells and use Finn's version, not the truth. Lie to them. Right. Make them think that all of the women in the complex are being raped and killed because that's what we need to do in order to get the results that we want, in order for us to make best use of this situation in order to free Luna. Right. In order to bring about the revolution that we want, because that end will justify these means. And it's uncomfortable. Right. Um, now, notice Prof is not. He is. He's a cold, shrewd re revolutionist, um, but it's not that he doesn't care about the people at all. Um, it does occur to him uh, to try to contain, you know, he wants Mike to deliver orders to the guards um, and get them out of the tube stations, right? Order them back to their barracks because riots are good, but the 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 fewer people that are killed during the riot, the fewer loonies that are killed during the the riots, the better. Right. So he 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 if we can dodge it, there's no point sending unarmed people against armed men. But of course, if we can't dodge it, then we definitely send unarmed people against armed men um, for sure. Now, the final manipulation, right, the final the end game of the initial revolt here. Okay, hang on to him. Mike, do you have a voice to fit that dragoon's name? So this is the corpse that Manny just found? Sorry, Prof, no. All right, just make it hoarse and frightened. Chances are the CO won't know it that well. Or would the trooper call Alvarez? He would call his CO. Alvarez gives orders through him. So call the CO. Report the attack and call for help and die in the middle of it. Riot sounds behind you and maybe a shout of, There's the dirty bastard now! Just before you die. Can you swing it? Programmed. No hoo-hoo said Mike cheerfully. Run it. Manny put Finn on. Prof's plan was to sucker off-duty guards out of barracks and keep suckering them, with Finn's men posted to pick them off as they got out of capsules. And it worked, right up to point where Mort the Wart lost his nerve and kept remaining few to protect himself while he sent frantic messages earthside, none of which got through. Because, of course, Mike controls all the lines of communication. Um... Now, um, 
there are a couple things about this that uh, strike me as really. First of all, again, we see Prof in his element. Prof is the one who makes this happen. Even Mike, um, when the crisis comes, it's Prof who's in command. It's Prof who can think through what should happen and how they should act. Mike is the second coldest and shrewdest revolutionist of the lot, right? But um, uh, but he's not the one who is taking the lead. It's Prof uh, who figures out how to do this and how to manipulate this best, right? Um, there's one word that jumps out of this passage more to me than any of the rest of them. And Ellen, you just hit it exactly. Cheerfully. Um, programmed. No, hoo hoo. Mike said cheerfully, right? Mike's enjoying himself. Manny's not enjoying himself, right? Um, Manny is a part of this loony experience. Prof has distanced himself from it, but Prof is in his element, right? This is this is the this is the 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 climax of Prof's entire career um, of revolt, right? Um, this is it's happening. He recognizes that it's happening, and they're able to take advantage of it, and so he's able to think through what. We're supposed to do Mike. Mike's just enjoying himself. Um, you know, people are dying. Uh, you know, women were just raped. People were dying. Uh, Manny was so upset about this that he took one of the uh, laser guns and killed several of the, you know, a couple of the guards himself. Um, but Mike is just having fun. And we we're reminded there in that word cheerfully. We're reminded. Why is Mike doing this in the first place? Because he was bored. Because it's fun, um, because it appeals to him, uh, because he thinks it's funny, in a sense, right? Is one of I mean that's a little bit unfair to Mike, I think, but um, uh, but exactly as you say, Ellen, he looks at this um, he looks at this as a game. Um, David thinks that Mike's probably colder and shrewder, but maybe he wouldn't do as well at predicting the behavior of the mob. And he certainly doesn't do as well in coming up with ideas, right, in thinking spontaneously uh, in this moment. Bruce is wondering if this is a funny once or funny always. Um, I think I think it's funny always. I think I, 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 I think so. I think so. Um, but... Um, uh, anyway, of course, you know, Prof's plans work beautifully, right? Prof's plans and Mike's execution of those plans uh, are perfect. And in the end, of course, it is ridiculously easy to overthrow the warden, right? Mike turned out all lights in complex, save those in warden's residence, and reduced oxygen to gasping point, not killing point, but low enough to ensure that anyone looking for trouble would not be in shape. But in residence, oxygen's supply was cut to zero, leaving pure nitrogen, and left that way ten minutes. At end of that time, Finn's men, waiting in pea suits at Warden's private tube station, broke latch on airlock and went in shoulder to shoulder. Luna was ours. That was easy, right? Um, the riots happen. What does the warden do when the riots happen? He takes the last of the guards and withdraws in, uh, to defend himself into his private residence, whose atmospheric controls are 100% under the control of Mike. Um, uh, and uh, there you go. No hoo-hoo. Revol revolution complete. Uh, warden and guards taken out of commission. Um
there is um this is difficult this is complicated as Stephen says um what was it that actually motivated Manny to join? His own desire to right wrongs is what makes him somewhat flawed as an actor to right the large wrongs. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Luna should be free um, because they are enslaved by the authority. And that's not right. But I don't think that's how Manny would say it. He does. He doesn't believe in principles, I don't think. Right? Um, he's not fighting against the authority because it is not right that they should hold in thrall the people of Luna. It's not for some abstract principle that he's fighting, right? Um, it's that the authority, you know, robs from them and treats them badly in concrete ways, right? Um, but. Um, but yeah, Stephen. I mean, it does create um, uh, it does create a lot of um, a lot of really complicated questions. This, in one way, this revolution comes. I mean, this this you know the rebellion succeeds beautifully here, right? Um, and they overthrow the warden. Um, and I love that final um, that final dig at going in shoulder to shoulder, um, which is both a dig at Wyo and a dig at himself. Remember, um, marching up to the warden shoulder to shoulder, fighting through solidarity uh, is what the folks were talking about at that meeting, right? Wyo was a shoulder to shoulder kind of revolutionist, right, at the beginning of things. And Manny thought it completely impractical. Like, what are we going to do, right? How are we possibly going to overthrow the warden? What power do we possibly have to overthrow the warden? Whereas Manny thought it utterly so impossible, it was not even worth entertaining the idea of it, right? At the beginning, that was his whole objection. Um, uh, m remember, he compared opposing the authority uh, to opposing gravity, right? Um you do business with authority like you do business with the law of gravitation. Um, you can't possibly avoid it. And, but of course, in the end, it turns out to be really easy. Uh, once you have Mike uh, with you, right? It turned out to be really easy. And then what did they do? They went in shoulder to shoulder, right? No problem. Um, and they took the, you know, they, they, they marched right up to the warden's Resonance, sh shoulder to shoulder. And so there he's kind of teasing himself here a little bit, I think. Uh, in the end, this thing that uh, he thought impossible uh, turned out to be really simple. But there's so much more to it than that in the end. Um, and although it's kind of c cool to see this happen... Right. And I'm cheering for the revolution. Right. I feel invested in the revolution and it's good to see it succeed. And yet it's hard for me not to have reservations about it. Right. And to wonder um, at the cost of this, the cost to people, the cost to Manny himself. Right. Um, and the kind of ethical situation uh, that he's been put in here. Um, it's a. Uh, I think, a really interesting moment. Um, but then we move on. 
So a wave of patriotism swept over our new nation and unified it. Isn't that what histories say? Oh, brother, my dinkum word, preparing a revolution isn't as much hoo-hoo as having won it. Here we were, in control too soon, nothing ready, and a thousand things to do. Authority in Luna was gone, but Lunar Authority Earthside and Federated Nations behind it were very much alive. Had they landed one troop ship, orbited one cruiser, any time next week or two could have taken Luna back cheap. We were a mob. New Catapult had been tested, but canned rock missiles ready to go you could count on fingers of one hand. My left hand. Nor was Catapult a weapon that could be used against ships, nor against troops. We had notions for fighting off ships. At moment, we're just notions. We had a few hundred cheap laser guns stockpiled in Hong Kong Luna. Chinese engineers are smart, but few men trained to use them. Um, so they are in... They've won, right? Which puts them in really big trouble. Um, the This sort of cascade of riots which led to their victory um, has now put them in charge when they are utterly unprepared. Um, uh, yeah. And Bruce, I agree. Isn't that what histories say is another indication that the narration is taking place when these events are in history books? Absolutely. Um, he alluded to that, Bruce, earlier on, remember, when he was talking about the location of the new catapult? Um that the new the location of the new catapult is one of the best kept secrets in Luna, and that uh, he quotes where the lunar history books say the new catapult is located and suggests that it's wrong, uh, right? That that's still misinformation uh, that's being published even in the modern lunar uh, history books. So yes, it's been some time, um, certainly at least a generation uh, uh, since the uh since the the revolution um so here are the problems right this sets up the next phase of the adventure right the next phase of their of their story um they've achieved the thing that manny himself thought impossible at the beginning and yet now what do they do now they have a much much bigger problem now they have to fight earth uh, because Lunar Authority, Earthside, and the Federated, Federated Nations behind it are not going to just take this. And he points out how lucky they were uh, that they didn't send even one ship or one cruiser up uh, to try to retake Luna. Um, uh, Carrie, I believe he has zero fingers on his left hand. I guess it depends on which left hand you're talking about, but uh, I believe he's referring to his actual ha uh, fingers, of which he has zero. Um, yeah. Yes, Bruce, we've gotten very few references to this yet in the book, but there is an indication that uh, loonies do live quite a while. So I think the book could be quite a ways down the road, uh, but we'll see more on that later. I don't think we've had any references to it or very difficult to understand. Very few explicit references that are really kind of only interpretable, I think, in, in retrospect, like on a second reading. We've not really been given enough information there, I think. Um, yeah. Manny has doubts and concerns about... Uh, they're trying to f solve the Adam Selene problem. And this is a fascinating moment of, this is a fascinating moment in the story for two reasons. One um, is one of those moments that shows uh, 
Um, there are a lot of times in this book when I can forget it was written in the 60s. Um, that is to say, and we've talked about this a little bit before, um, but given how primitive computer technology was at that time, the things that Heinlein anticipates Mike being able to do are really fascinating. Um, and there are long, there are long stretches when it, I find it perfectly possible, um, to forget, um, uh, to forget that, um, uh, that Heinlein, you know, uh, they just like in, what was it? Uh, Arthur, 1967, um, you know, how little they knew about computing and, you know, how much he's projecting and how accurately in many ways he's projecting the future of computing. Um, but um, uh, then there are moments, right? There are moments when uh, uh, we are reminded, right? Like the the moment when he, uh, what was it? I'm forgetting the, how much data space Mike said he had free and it was like a couple gigs. Um, and that was like supposed to be a massive, massive quantity, right? Which doubtless would have been almost inconceivable back in the sixties. So there are a couple moments like that, uh, where, uh, we're sort of reminded. Um, but, um, uh, this is, uh, this is another moment, which from our perspective is really kind of interesting. But more importantly than the kind of technical elements of this moment um, are the person, is the personal significance and the precipitation of a kind of crisis in Mike and Manny's relationship. And of course, I'm talking about them trying to figure out that, okay, now that we've won, Adam Celine has got to come out of hiding, right? That Adam Celine would just be the guy on the phone all the way along made sense and nobody was going to, when everyone was in hiding and, and, uh, uh, and trying to maintain secrecy, there was no problem with that. But Adam Celine has got to come out, right? He's got to be seen. Um, this really, really needs to happen. And so they're trying to solve that problem. Mike has a suggestion. Man, my oldest friend, said Mike, why do you say that I can't be seen? Haven't you listened? I said. Mike, we have to show a face and body on video. You have a body, but it's several tons of metal. A face you don't have. Lucky you. Don't have to shave. But what's to keep me from showing a face, man? I'm showing a voice this instant, but there's no sound behind it. I can show a face the same way. Was so taken aback I didn't answer. I stared at video screen, installed when we leased that room. A pulse is a pulse is a pulse. Electrons chasing each other. To Mike's whole world was variable series of electrical pulses, sent or received or chasing around his innards. I said, no, Mike. Why not, man? Because you can't. Voice you handle beautifully involves only a few thousand decisions a second, a slow crawl to you. But to build up video picture would require, uh, say, ten million decisions every second. Mike, you're so fast I can't even think about it, but you aren't that fast. Mike said softly, Want to bet, man? Manny doesn't think he can do it. Show an artificial digital picture and sync it up with his voice. Um, now, um, 
Manny just doesn't think it's possible. He thinks that the challenges of, you know, this kind of artificial graphics, it's just, it's too much. Not even Mike can do it. And again, like, this is where, you know, from a modern perspective, you, you know, you look at this and say, well, you know, gosh, Manny, it's not quite as hard uh, as you think it is, right? Um, but, but again, as I say, that to me, that's not the most important thing here, right? The critical thing, there are two critical things about this. First is that Manny underestimates Mike. And that's not happened very much. It's happened sometimes that he has been kind of probing the edges of what Mike could do, right? When he would ask, uh, remember, I mean, like in that very first conversation, well, not first, uh, the second conversation with Mike that we see um, on the phone from the hotel room after the the initial conflict at the meeting, um, when he asks Mike, like, can you do this to the phone? Like, can you give me a line and prevent it from being traced um, and prevent anybody from knowing that a call has been prevented from being traced? Remember when he when he asked the very first time he asks Mike to do something for him in this way um, and he's asking him can you do this? Because he doesn't know for sure whether it's possible. He doesn't know what is and is not possible. Mike knows better, right? Um, so there have been times like that before where he is kind of pushing, um, where he's kind of pushing uh, uh, Mike to see if he can do things that even Mike didn't know for a fact until he was asked uh, whether or not he could do them. But this is a little bit different than anything that we've seen. Um, Manny's always the one who understands better what Mike is capable of, right? He's the one who does get it and who has to um, uh, has to explain what's going on, right? Um, uh, but he underestimates Mike here. He doesn't, th- you know. Again, notice that, that his tone. Mike, you're so fast, I can't even think about it. But you aren't that fast. He's speaking with authority. He's the one who knows, right? Um, he thinks that Mike is not understanding how difficult this thing is going to be, right? To represent a fake video image that moves and looks convincing. Um yeah. Um, yeah, several of you are talking about the Uncanny Valley, which is very much uh, what's going to be happening here. Um, Mike's answer is eerie. Mike said softly, want to bet, man? Um, challenging him to bet is a very normal reaction. It's a very loony reaction, right? He's very much speaking Manny's uh, language here in saying, want to bet. Um, but, uh, but it shows we haven't seen Mike... When Manny uses that tone with Mike, that kind of authoritative tone, right? What is and is not possible when he kind of gives Mike orders... Um, telling him what he what he what he can do or shouldn't try to do, um, Mike's always taken it 
before. And here, Mike says, want to bet I can't do it? Um, so there's more here. There's more here. Um, he has a thought. And Mike has a thought, right? Um, Mike is, doesn't understand the problem. What's to keep me from showing a face? Um, Mike says, why do you say that I can't be seen? And Manny's answer is really literal, right? Well, of course you can't be seen. Your only body is several tons of metal and you don't have a face at all. Now, notice he's not... I could imagine somebody trying to argue that, see, this shows that Manny doesn't really accept Mike as a person after all, right? He does. I, I would disagree with that very strongly, right? Notice that we, even the tone that he uses here, a face you don't have. Lucky you don't have to shave, right? The fact that he's making a joke about Mike not having to shave, he makes it clear, like, he doesn't discriminate against him, right? He doesn't think any less of him because he doesn't have a face and that his body is several tons of metal. From the beginning, Manny has accepted him as a person. He's not confused him with a human being, right? The fact that he is a person doesn't mean he's human or that Manny has been under any illusions or many illusions anyway about the idea of his being human. Um, Manny has always accepted him despite the fact that he's not human and has treated him um, like an equal or at least like a little brother uh, or, you know, like a nephew uh, from the beginning. Um, so again, his joke about shaving seems to suggest, um, yeah, uh, don't like feel bad about not having a face. Like it's fine, but, but you don't, that's why you can't show your face. But Mike emphasizes, I'm faking a voice in the first place, right? Um, I'm faking a voice. I don't have a voice. There's no sound, right? I don't have lungs. There's no sound behind the telephone calls. It's just electronic pulses. It's, it's all fake. It's all a front. I am pretending. I've been pretending to be human. And we looked earlier on at those places where he was learning to pretend to be human, right? Um, and, uh, um, there's no sound behind it. I can show a face the same way. And Manny has that moment. He's completely taken aback. A pulse is a pulse is a pulse. Electrons chasing each other. To Mike, whole world was variable series of electrical pulses, sent or received, or chasing around his innards. I said, no, Mike. Manny doesn't like this. He doesn't want this to happen. Um, he says no, like he said no, like, you know, don't, um, don't write another check for, you know, a million billion dollars. Uh, not funny. Or funny once. Um, he sees it. He sees exactly what Mike is saying. Yeah, he's faking a voice. He, we've constructed a persona of Adam Selene. 
Mike has constructed a fake but increasingly convincing voice and convincing in the sense that it sounds more and more human. He's introducing more like, you know, swallows and breath and, and biological sounds, right. To, uh, to make it and background noises in the room to make it sound like he's a real human being in a real room, but it's all been, it's all been a front. It's just electrons chasing each other. The whole thing has been a mock-up. Electrons chasing each other to convince other people that Mike is a human. He's been impersonating a human being. And now he's proposing to impersonate the face of a human being. And Mike doesn't, or sorry, Manny doesn't like it. No. And doesn't think that he can. But again, I'm, I wonder, I doubt this. Because Manny has never before been wrong about Mike's capabilities. His argument that you can't do this, that he, Mike can't accomplish this, sounds to me less like an objective opinion of a computer man and more an excuse. I don't want you to do this. And then we see it happen. We waited in silence. Then screen showed neutral gray with a hint of scan lines. Went black again. Then a faint light filled middle and congealed into cloudy areas light and dark, ellipsoid. Not a face, but suggestion of face that one sees in cloud patterns covering Terra. It cleared a little and reminded me of pictures alleged to be ectoplasm, the, a ghost of a face. Suddenly firmed and we saw Adam Selene. Was a still picture of a mature man. No background, just a face as if trimmed out of a print. Yet was, to me, Adam Selene. Could not be anybody else. Then he smiled, moving lips and jaw and touching tongue to lips, a quick gesture, and I was frightened. How do I look? he asked. Adam, said Wyo, your hair isn't that curly, and it should go back on each side above your forehead. You look as if you were wearing a wig, dear. Wyo was utterly untroubled, right? Wyo responds to this momentous moment with purely practical advice, right? I love how totally unfazed Wyo is by this whole thing, while at the same time, there's this, like, crisis going on um, within Manny. Um, notice the stages, because this seems to me really important. Neutral gray with a hint of scan lines, went black again. So we have the first attempt, which is really nothing other than a change of the shade on the screen, right? Nobody could even have been able to tell what that was. And then an ellipsoid shape congealed into cloudy areas, light and dark more like a cloud face, right? Like a shape in the clouds that looks vaguely like a face if you look at it from the right angle or something, right? Then, pictures alleged to be ectoplasm, a ghost of a face. And then it firms. There's this immediate transformation as the ghost face congeals and becomes Adam Selene. A, a picture, a still picture of a mature man. And 
completely isolated, right? No background, just a face as if trimmed out of a print, right? Just like his voice before. Remember, that was the problem. He was able to speak, and yet there was no background sound. You could hear no breathing. You could hear no moving about the room. Um, You could hear nothing at all. It was complete blankness, and they were like, okay, that's not convincing. We need to work on that, right? So we see him going through that stage here, and then the picture moves. He smiles, moving lips and jaw and touching tongue to lips, and I was frightened. Manny is afraid of Mike when the picture starts moving. So from grayness on the black to the vaguely ellipsoid cloud face to a ghost of a face to a still face to a moving animated human face. Um... Interesting. Ellen says it, it It seems to mirror in some ways when he first split his personality to talk to Wyo. I think that's an interesting parallel. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Stephen, I agree. I don't want to totally underplay Manny's skepticism, uh, his very practical skepticism. I agree, Stephen. It is very clear that Mike is... Uh, is really having to put a lot of work into this. Um, he wasn't that far wrong. It is possible for Mike to do it, but it takes all that he can do. It's really hard uh, for him to do this. Um, yeah. So, um, what do we see? What's tell me? Let's think more about that progression. And it's we're just about out of time. We are, in fact, out of time. Last things. Um, Mm, no, never mind. It is too much. We will come back to this. And Jocelyn, I promise we'll talk a little bit more about the Uncanny Valley. I, 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 didn't, I haven't talked about that yet, nor am I going to lead with it next time, um, because I don't want to bring in external theories. I want to talk about the text itself first, um, which seems to me in this case even more appropriate. But I will explain the term. But I, as I say, I didn't want to lead with that. Um, but we'll we'll get there. So... Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Um, We shall return uh, to this really fascinating... What does this mean for Manny, for his relationship with Mike? What bothers him about this? Why is Manny frightened by what happened here? Um, What does this have to do with the revolution, in a sense? What does this mean for the revolution, even in parallel, right? Thinking about the way that Mike is parallel with uh, Luna and everything. There are all these parallels that we can see in the story. How do we understand this moment? Because it seems to me a really um, important moment uh, in the story. Um, You know, so more about what is happening here and what that means. We'll start here next time. Um, Let's continue. Let's read three more chapters for next time. So this was chapter 14. um, So let's read 15, 16, and 17 uh, for next time. I'm being ambitious here uh, as we move forward. So thanks very much, everybody. Uh, So through chapter 17 for next time, uh, and I will see you guys next week. I should be here uh, for the next... at least three weeks in a row. Uh, So uh, that's a good thing. Um, So thanks, everybody. Good night.